0: Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar, and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of All I Know. I'm really excited to bring you tonight's guest. This is Aaron. Aaron, welcome. Thank you. It's
1: an honor to be here.
0: I'm so, so happy that you're here. And we're just gonna dive right in like we always do. What is it that we need to know about you and who you are to make the most of the conversation we're gonna have?
1: I am a 50 year old white male. I'm married. I have two children. I live in a suburb of Denver. I was born and raised in Colorado. And I currently am employed as a school district administrator supporting school counselors. So I think that's a thumbnail sketch of who I am.
0: On the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where do you plot your life?
1: This is such a good question. I would say that presently my life resides in... uh, I think what a lot of people would consider an ordinary space. I live in the suburbs, you know, I mow my lawn. I go and watch my kid play sports. He's nine. But when I look at the totality of my life, I I, I've made some decisions that I think have pushed me into an extraordinary space. And I found myself in some extraordinary places. So I would say that if I consider my overall trajectory, it trends toward extraordinary. Although someone looking at my life presently would find it pretty ordinary.
0: I mean, I feel like that's kind of a teaser. Are you going to pepper in a little bit here about what makes your life extraordinary? Or do you think that's coming in the conversation?
1: It's, oh, it's coming right around uh, the corner.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. that would be just unfair, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> I, I don't want to leave listeners wondering.
0: And particularly with this question, when we're talking about ordinary and extraordinary, it's so fascinating to hear what everybody has to say about their perspective on their life. And so depending on where you put yourself on that spectrum and then what comes tumbling out of your mouth afterward, I just think that's a really fascinating study in humanity. So I didn't want to let you get away with saying that. Spectacular piece, and then not touch on it.
1: Hold me accountable. Don't <laughs> let me get away with stuff because I'll try. Okay. <laughs>
0: okay. What's your definition of success?
1: My definition of success directly correlates to what I believe is our intention in in life, and I think that that is directly related to growing evolving, learning, being open to absorb the experiences that uh, life has for us and trying to stay connected to the people that we love. That's so I, I know that's beautiful. kind of a long and convoluted definition, but that's what I think we're supposed to do in life is to evolve and to grow.
0: I think part of what you just said with your words is exactly why I asked you to participate in this project with me and to be a storyteller because that's really the purpose behind this whole thing. This whole project is about, hey, what do, what do you got that you can share with me? What do you know? Because we're all on this journey together and we do not take enough time to learn from each other. So I love that that's part of your definition of success and the connection piece. Oh my gosh, you're speaking
1: my language. Nice. Well, I'm, I think that if, if we're not connecting and learning from each other, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a good time for me to mention that I am a new listener and a very enthusiastic fan of this podcast. And so being oh, here is a, is a huge honor. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we're to the big one. All right. <laughs> the one that feels huge for everybody. What would you say are three events? themes, circumstances, experiences, any combination of that that you want to use from your life that have most shaped who you are. And then after we hear about those three things in a little bit broader sense, let's choose one to talk about more in depth.
1: Okay. So what I would like to share first is that my experiences came as a result of a decision that I had made almost as an afterthought during my freshman year of college. And so to provide a little background, I grew up in a small town outside of Boulder, Colorado. My family was middle-class. I really wanted to go out of state for school, but I couldn't afford to. And so I made a promise to myself that every summer I would have a job which represented an adventure because that was about the best approximation I could get for getting this dose of adventure, which I so longed for. So
0: I love that you knew this as a young man. So many people have no clue for so long about how big the world is and that we got to go out there and see it.
1: And I don't know what accounted for that. I think it was kind of baked into my DNA. And it's interesting because I spent a long time questioning that decision. Because Having as summers
0: I, as adventure was a question?
1: Well, we'll get to why, because it changed the trajectory of my life ultimately. And there was a long time that I saw my friends progressing in their careers in their twenties, and I was still having adventures. And I, and I had other friends who were getting married and having kids and I was still having adventures. And, you know, so we'll, we'll come back to it. <laughs> okay. You know, I've, I've come to view it only very recently as a huge blessing, but I think the angst that we go through in our twenties and our thirties, it's really natural to compare yourself to everyone else.
0: Absolutely. So, I resonate with that deeply. I'm still doing it in my 40s. <laughs> hey,
1: the most interesting people I know don't know what they want to do in their 40s with their life. So anyway, this decision to have adventures every summer led me to be a rafting guide for an expeditionary company. It's summer number one. I was about 1920. So financial circumstances led me to want to make some money. So the second summer, a group of friends and I, and this was spearheaded by my good friend, who is now my wife. She had the idea that we should go to Alaska. And back then, there were these ads in the back of newspapers like, go work in the fish cannery, make some money. It was a, in every college newspaper across the country. So we did that. And we flew up to Alaska with no job. We had done very little research. This is pre-internet. You know, it's like 1991. And we ended up on this beach in this incredibly remote part of Bristol Bay. It was a 20-minute flight in a puddle jumper from the nearest town across this kind of godforsaken tundra. And it was this place where the ocean had some of the biggest tide changes on Earth. So the ocean would go out to the horizon. It oh, would be wow. a giant mudflat. And there were brown bears and bald eagles and porcupines. And it was a it was a wilderness where a fish cannery had been carved along the edge of this beach.
0: You, I, I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you. You guys went to Alaska because of an ad you saw in the paper, but you didn't actually have a connection to this cannery at the time.
1: Well, there were a group of seven of us. And one of us had been to Alaska previously. Okay. What he had said was, if we get desperate, I will call the cannery I used to work at, and I'm pretty sure I can get us a job. (laughs) So after two weeks, we were desperate. We were very desperate. We were out of money, but we were in a pretty difficult situation. And The last thing my dad said to me before I left was, when you run out of money, and you need a plane ticket home. You call me collect, and I will send you the money. And I was absolutely determined not to let that happen. Wow. So we we get out to this place, and um, what I understand now, and what I came to understand a few summers later, is that I was seeking a rite of passage, and I'd grown up with really strong male role models. My father was a self-made man. He had been an all-American fullback in college. He had grown up in an oil field. He was roughnecking when he was 12. Whoa. He was a Derek man when he was 14. Just an incredibly strong man. My grandfather was a war hero, and none of us knew it until he died because he never talked about it. He had a number of, of decorations and and, and medals and things. and So I come from these really strong men. So anyway, I went to Alaska, I ended up spending eight summers there. And I had some really foundational experiences there that really formed me. And so I feel like in a lot of ways, those formational experiences taught me life lessons about what it means to work with people, take initiative, uh, lead, be strong, and, and you know, Somebody tried to kill me one summer. I was in a plane crash, leaving the beach another summer. Wait, wait, wait. So there were a lot of these things that happened.
0: These could be the three things. Yeah, but this is just one. This is one. Wait, you said somebody tried to kill you, plane crash, chased by a bear. I just want to make sure I got that. Yeah, Uh
1: yeah. So that's Alaska. And, And I bring that up. And connected to the decision to have adventures every summer because it really did change the trajectory of my life.
0: Where did it send your life?
1: So number two was that this experience of being in Alaska made me feel different than the other students at the university I attended, which was uh, the University of Colorado at Boulder. So I went back there and, and, and most people would return home for the summer and maybe work, maybe not. Many of them didn't need to. Meanwhile, I would return a changed person every summer with a new set of skills. One summer, I learned how to drive heavy equipment. Another summer, I learned how to run a fish buying station. Another summer, I learned I had to fire someone for the first time. Another summer, I got in a fight. These were making imprints on my character and on my soul. And it left me wanting more adventure. I wanted to expand my horizons even more. So I was taking a class from a professor who he taught part of a semester abroad program in Nepal. And it was part of a high altitude physiology class. And he was an inventor and he had invented a device, which is basically like a giant Ziploc bag. And when you pump air into it and you zip it closed, it simulates bringing you down in elevation and it had saved lives in Everest the season before.
0: Are you talking about
1: this is crazy. So it's called the gamoff bag.
0: And that Um, was your professor. The whole thing about it is to help people deal with altitude.
1: Yes. And he, and he had a lab on campus where he was creating these inventions with graduate students and he would, test them out as part of this study abroad program on a trek. And he mentioned in Nepal, in Nepal. So he mentions this in class and he mentions offhandedly that there's a meeting that night. So I went to the meeting, I heard the spiel and I wrote a check for money. I didn't have in the bank to go. (laughs) So luckily I made pretty good money in Alaska, so I funded this semester abroad trip. Nepal opened my eyes in a way that I could never have imagined. There are twice as many temples in Kathmandu as there are homes. And in the morning, the air is scented in incense because everyone lights incense, and it was this incredible experience.
0: I so, kind of feel like I can't breathe just even trying to imagine.
1: So it was a transformational experience. And I loved it so much that I finagled my way into returning for a second semester as the student liaison to help run the program. Brilliant. So you yeah. were there for
0: a year, an academic year anyway. Yeah,
1: I was. I was. I spent two semesters there. Yeah. And so it gave me this this incredible appreciation for um, the Nepalese people, for what it means to be poor, but satisfied, mm. you know, not that I was poor, but the people that I met there were amazing, you know. Uh, I still have one of the friends that I met there ultimately came to the U.S. and ended up living with my parents for 14 years.
0: Whoa.
1: Yeah. And he has returned since to Nepal. And and so he's kind of like an honorary member of the family.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, so, so that was Nepal.
0: So what you've said so far about Alaska, the experiences that you had there, Sounds like they really sculpted who you are as a man. And the Alaskan summers were rites of passage summers because you would come home with these new skills. Yeah. The yeah. two semesters in Nepal sound like this incredible cultural and scientific experience based on this device that you guys were working with. How would you bottom line Nepal? What did you take away? from Nepal, if Alaska summers were the rite of
1: passage summers? That's a great question. I think I came back from Nepal after the first semester and I seriously contemplated dropping out of college. I just kind of felt this existential void around and a disconnect between my classes And I didn't see how they related to my life.
0: Well, and probably what you were experiencing in the world was so.
1: (sighs) It was a, it was every day was an adventure and it was so rich. It was so rich. And ultimately I had unfinished business in Nepal. I needed more time there. And so I think part of negotiating this opportunity to return to Nepal was about addressing that unfinished business. What was the unfinished business? Well, I think I needed clarity around my life. I felt like there was a lesson that I needed to learn, that I needed to internalize. And so the second semester was really interesting because I returned with the intention to pay attention, you know, and to really track what that was. And I had responsibility. The program doubled in size. We went from having 11 students the first semester to 22 students the second semester. I was responsible for them. And so it wasn't the freewheeling kind of adventure that I'd had the first time.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, no party. It just wasn't, yeah. You know, I mean, they had a party, but I I kind of felt like dad going, Okay, guys, you might not want to drink that kookery rum because it made me throw up last year, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I returned from Nepal the second time, I decided that I was gonna make the most of the incredible opportunities that I had. And The first thing that I did is I applied for an honors program and I was majoring in sociology at the time. And, and I ended up writing an honors thesis about Alaska entitled trial by fishing male initiation in remote Alaska. I
0: bet it's a fascinating paper.
1: There are a lot of stories packed into it. There's probably half a dozen books and You know, it's been read by all of five people, you know. Um,
0: You should publish it, Aaron, or do something with it to be published. Yeah,
1: well, you know, and and it was interesting, Jen, because when I graduated, my defense committee said, you know, you should go to UC Berkeley. They have a really good PhD program, and you should publish this. You should do a, a doctoral thesis on this, but what was happening at the same time Was that my now girlfriend, who I had gone to Alaska with originally, had talked me into going to a job fair for Antarctica? (laughs) And so, you know, so we—you're a
0: globetrotter, man. You're just all over the planet.
1: And this is my twenties, you know. And that's what I did instead—the
0: Antarctic job fair. Yeah, and then what job does one procure on Antarctica?
1: Well, I was a heavy equipment operator. And so what I did is sometimes I unloaded airplanes that flew in from New Zealand, but mostly what I did is I delivered things around McMurdo Research Station. And I spent a lot of time driving around in my loader, looking at the horizon and these mountains in the horizon, which were, uh, were really beautiful in 20 below weather, which came to feel really normal. You oh, know? my gosh. So that was, that was five months.
0: So we have summers in Alaska, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Nepal, where you learned you were going to make the most of opportunities and experiences that were before you. Yes. And what's the third?
1: The third is tragic. And it's uh, four and a half years ago, my son Noah died he died very suddenly in a hiking accident outside of Glenwood Springs near a waterfall. And so that was a really hard experience, but it is something that has caused me to reevaluate everything in my life. And it has kind of changed the way that I function so those are the three things, two adventures and a tragedy.
0: I don't, there are no words for me to say the right thing in this moment. I'm so sorry.
1: Thank you. And it's hard because there is no word to describe a person who has lost a child. Uh, Unlike a person who is a widow and loses a spouse or it it is uh, an unnatural occurrence. I was just
0: going to say it's very much against the natural order of things. And obviously he was quite young.
1: He was eight years old uh, when that happened. And so when I say I have two children, Noah is one of them. My son, Ben, uh, who's now nine and was five when Noah died. And I will say that Ben has been a, a guiding light to me. Ensuring that he has a childhood that is meaningful and safe and rewarding is really been core to my moving through this, uh, grief and experience in losing, uh, Noah. So,
0: so, um, I mean there, yeah, there's no eloquent or graceful way to ask you which of those three things you want to unpack a little bit more.
1: Yeah, well, I guess Alaska, Nepal, or kind of viewing life as an adventure would be much easier. But I think, I think the most salient and poignant and powerful uh, experience would probably be Noah's death.
0: Well, I I want I, I really appreciate your openness, and I want to ask you questions about Noah but I'm finding that I think I'm having the experience that a lot of people have when we're talking about loss and particularly one that's so intimate and against the order of things and tragic that you feel like, Oh, I shouldn't touch that. That's rude. No, <laughs> that's,
1: no. That's rude to ask
0: about. No, but yeah, I, yeah. I think if our listeners are anywhere where I am, Can you tell us more about that day just so that we can understand what happened and what you went through? If I can understand what happened, then I might be able to understand the other pieces that are built on top of it. Sure. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So there is a, a hike in Glenwood Canyon outside of Glenwood Springs called Hanging Lake. So at the top, there's a lake And above the lake, about 100 yards to the side, there's spouting rock, which is a waterfall that comes out of the rock face, and it feeds the lake. And to give a little historical context, I have been hiking Hanging Lake ever since I was a little kid. My family would go to Glenwood Springs frequently when I was growing up. This is a
0: family place for you.
1: It is. It is. It is. And so I I think as a dad, you want to share places that represent fond memories with your kids. We had done this hike a number of times as a family. We had done it uh, different seasons. We'd done it in the snow. This day was in mid-June. And uh, so we, we decided to go up there and we did. And we got to the lake and it was... It was afternoon and Noah said, I really want to go up to Spouting Rock. We had been picnicking on a deck. We walked across this deck and my son, Ben was five at the time and he was running along this deck and he, and he slipped into the lake.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And he, you know, but it wasn't deep and, you know, he went into his waist in water and Noah said, well, I I really want to go up there and, So my wife, Lisa, said, all right, you come with me. And I said, Ben, I'll stay here with you. You dry out. And then we'll all head down together. So Lisa and uh, Noah went up the trail. And uh, a few minutes later, a man comes down and he says, is your name Aaron? And I said, yeah. And he said, "Your, your son's been in an accident. It looks really bad to me. I think you need to get up there right now. So I got up from the bench and I said, Ben, let's go. And ran up the trail. And um, Ben was trailing behind me about 20 yards. I saw Noah laying on the ground. I said, Ben, stay there. Just stay there. And when I got to Noah, he was um, what we learned later and what the coroner believes happened is that a rock, there's kind of a sheer rock wall that represents an oval around the outside of, of spouting rock. And he believes that a, that a, that a rock calved off the off the sheer wall, landed on his head and killed him instantly. Uh, I proceeded with some um, good Samaritans who were there to do CPR for 90 minutes. Um, oh my God, Aaron! And that's when the uh, EMTs arrived and announced him uh, dead. And so that's what happened. I mean, we we just went on a hike, and then Noah died. And so it was entirely unexpected. In the entire history of Hanging Lake, there was there was one other death, and it was a man who had a heart attack in his late sixties. Nothing like this, you know, uh, t- to my knowledge or to the park ranger's knowledge, that ever happened before. Yeah, that's how this happened. And so,
0: yeah. Yeah. Was Lisa with him when mm. the rock fell? Or did she find him in
1: trouble? There's a place behind the waterfall that you can climb under a rock. And go to the other side. And uh, Noah was aware of this because we'd we done it a couple of times previously. And so Noah had run ahead of Lisa, gone under this rock. Lisa had crawled under the rock after him. And then he had uh, shimmied under this rock, run around to the other side. And he was waiting for her. So she didn't see it happen There are no other witnesses who saw it happen, but I do have videotape that was shot by a woman who was filming the falls, and she caught Noah in the frame. Oh, my gosh. And so she's looking from behind the waterfall out, and Noah is um, looking up at the sky, waving his arms, really in a moment of joy. And her her video cuts out. I think a couple seconds before it happened, she had turned her back. So we we don't know exactly, but Lisa Lisa came upon him pretty you know a few seconds after it happened. And I don't. I guess I um. You know I don't I don't know that dwelling on this was my intention necessarily, but I do want listeners to understand just how drastically our life turned on a dime.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm hit with that right now as I'm listening to you talk, you know, hearing about your picnic and knowing what the hike up is like and just this very casual, normal, like, Hey, you and mom go do this and we're going to do that. And Mm. that within minutes, the four beating hearts of your family became three
1: yeah yeah it's unspeakable what happened to you yeah it it um yeah and so i i think the um the aftermath of that was really eye opening and i'm a, a counselor i'm a licensed therapist i have been trained in helping people through tragedy and
0: then there's this
1: and then and then there's this and it, i think in a lot of ways you know my my wife lisa has the same background as me we went to grad school together we have the same training I'll give Lisa credit here. She was really proactive and we reached out for help. We got Ben into intensive therapy. We uh, received a tremendous amount of help through an organization in Denver called uh, Judy's House. Yeah. Where we met other families who'd lost people. We worked really intentionally around trying to heal and around trying to engage our grief. And there is a lot of realizations that came out of this for me. The statistics around parents who lose children are uh, are devastating. There's a higher suicide rate, higher rate of accidents, higher rate of cancer, just a lot of- Divorce. Divorce. And I think that- The thing I understand now is, you know, I understand why someone would make a choice to end their life after losing a child. And I understand why someone would find solace in a bottle Mm -hmm. and, and never stop drinking. I mean, there are a whole lot of bad decisions you can make. And I get that, you know, but when I mentioned earlier that Ben is my guiding light, I wasn't going to let that happen to Ben. You know, it's funny what we will do for our children that we wouldn't necessarily do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I made a conscious decision as someone in a helping profession to talk about this and be open about it because my hope is that something positive could come out of this. That could come out of my experience in the weeks and months following Noah's death, I I came to be really grateful for the fact that, that I was a school counselor. My school was really great. They said, if you want to come back to work later, or if you want to take a semester or a year off, we'll work with you. You know, we just want to support you. And um, I ended up going back to work at the end of the summer, a few weeks later. And and really honestly, to my surprise, and I think my school surprise, I had one of the most productive years I've ever had. Wow. Um, I just felt a mission and I felt really purpose-driven to redouble my efforts. And I made a pact with my son that I would devote the work that I do to him, to Noah, and that we would... In some ways, do it together. That has been uh, a really interesting journey, and and I feel like he is with me. There have been some experiences I've had uh, in my current position that have been absolutely remarkable, and some of those things I do think Noah has had a hand in. So it's been kind of a a really rewarding an interesting journey. It's
0: no wonder to me um, hearing you say that that first year back to work was incredibly productive based on the commitment that you made to Noah before returning back to work. Yeah. I imagine that he probably carried you through and propelled a lot of things in that year.
1: Absolutely. I think in the years since as well, and a couple things about Noah. Noah was this incredibly bright, funny, creative kid. After he died, there were students in his class that came over to our house. My wife is Jewish, and so we we um, there's this thing in the Jewish tradition called um, sitting shiva,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we held a number of, uh, of events where people came over to the house and it it was just this kind of sacred time where, uh, people came over to the backyard and everybody brought food. And I don't know, we did this five or six nights in a row. And, uh, there's this little girl who came with her mom and she shared with us that she had broken her leg and she couldn't play at recess for a number of weeks and noah sat with her under the vestibule every recess for 3 weeks because he wanted to uh to look after her there was another situation where and, and mind you noah was in second grade at this time that same year one of his friends came to identify as as transgender and so he was going to return to school as a boy And there was a meeting that happened with his class. The student's parents were there. The teacher was there. And there was an explanation about, you know, the student is going to return with a new haircut, different clothes. And uh, there's this kind of aggressive group of boys in the class who started saying, well, why? Why do we have to use a different name? Why are they going to be wearing different clothes? Mm. You know, and Noah stood up. And he said, look, guys, this is our friend. Who cares what name they go by? Who cares what clothes they wear? This is our friend. In second grade. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And uh, that was the end of the discussion. That was the end of the discussion.
0: A big hearted so, guy.
1: Yeah. You know, he was gentle, but he was strong and wise you know beyond his years and it's a pretty high standard to try to meet cuz he was so good he was he was a he was a really good person and I think he would have done really good work so i have uh 15 18 years left in my career i figure to try to make up for some of what was lost by him not being around. So that's, that's the way that I have proceeded since his death. And I, I really don't take things for granted now. You know, before this, joining you, I went to the park with my son, Ben, and we had a great time. We were throwing the football, and we were kicking it, and we were just enjoying the fall day. And uh, I just thought, you know, this is exceptional, this time.
0: How is your family doing?
1: I would say we're doing as well as we possibly can be in light of what we've experienced. Ben is thriving. You know, he's he's now in fourth grade and he's stellar. Uh, My wife and I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't grieve Noah, but I don't live in a morose space. I don't suffer. I really try to suck the marrow out of life where I can.
0: So how did you do that, Aaron? Because right when you said, I don't suffer, I don't live in a morose space, I was thinking about what you had said before about understanding why someone might take their own life after losing a child or why someone might dive into a bottle and never come back. Mm. And so being so connected with the feelings that can bring a person to that place and being able to say, but I'm not living that way. How did you do that?
1: I think I'm really fortunate to uh, have a supportive community around me. Uh, My parents live nearby, and they moved here after Noah's death. And having them here is wonderful. And we have neighbors and and acquaintances prior to Noah's death who showed up for us. And they kept showing up. These things have been been huge. The other thing is, is that at some point, I just made a decision that... It would be a real shame if I spent my life in a space where I feel resentful, angry, and and, and that's just no place to live. That's just no way to live. But at the same time, I see a trajectory where someone would go that way. It's a very easy trap to fall into, Mm -hmm. you know, but going back to the experience in Alaska and in Nepal, I met a lot of guys who had made decisions to be angry and to live angry. And it never served them well. It Mm. never served their relationships well. And they were ultimately kind of bitter and lonely and honestly a little bit dangerous. And I don't ever want to be regarded that way. And I don't want to be remembered that way by uh, my friends, my family, certainly not my wife or my son. And so I very intentionally attempt To demonstrate resiliency by not succumbing to those traps. You know, and and in my own work with people, I've seen how uh, devastating it can be Mm -hmm. to just go dark. And so easy
0: after something so painful. Yeah. The harder road for sure is trying not to succumb to the trap.
1: Yeah, yeah, but there's really no other viable option. When I look at the uh, the outcomes that I want, I'm very keenly aware of the fact that the way that Lisa and I handle Noah's death will closely correlate to how Ben will handle his death, mm-hmm. you know? So for me, it almost felt like a moral and ethical obligation to figure it out.
0: I love what you're saying, because what I'm thinking as you're talking is that as tragic and horrific as it is that Noah's life was lost that day, there could have been others lost that day in a different way. If you hadn't done the work that you've been doing, if Lisa hadn't done the work that she's been doing and then the way that that trickles down for ben. Yeah, more than noah's life could have been lost that day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a that's a keen observation. One of my favorite books is man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. you know, and and one of the things that I'll paraphrase here because I I don't know the exact quote he basically said that it's that it's really important to choose your reaction. He said my fundamental power is to choose my reaction to any given situation. You know, and I think that that's so true and I think that it's such a profound truth. And so I've really tried to internalize that. And I remind myself of that every single day.
0: Yeah, probably multiple times a day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sometimes, sometimes. I
0: mean, so if you were to boil all of this down for us, Erin, if we were bringing this to a close and trying to crystallize what it is that you have learned and made from this incredibly sad story that no parent should ever have to endure, and you were going to tell us what you know, how would you finish that phrase? All I
1: know is? All I know is that life is unpredictable and hard, but redeemable. And it's within my power to choose what I do with my life. Thank you, Aaron. Absolutely.
0: It's hard to um, change gears. I think it'll be, you know, hard for the friends that listen to change gears too. But because I believe that rituals are very important and consistency and predictability is important, we're going to close with the same questionnaire that we always use, which was an exercise that James Lipton took people through on inside the actor's studio. So are you ready?
1: I'm ready. (laughs) Hit me with it.
0: Aaron, what's your favorite word?
1: Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious.
0: (laughs) So appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) What's your least favorite word? Can't. Do you know you are the third person to say that to me this season? No. Yes. I mean, no, of course you wouldn't know because not all of those episodes have been released, but this is like spooky for me right now because (laughs) you're the third person in a row. I think to say that your least favorite word is can't what turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally.
1: Spontaneity and adventure turns you off. Ignorance, lack of rationality, and assholi-o-ness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, what a great new word! <laughs> and the fantastic thing is, what's your favorite curse word that comes right after that? Except, I hope it will be something different than what was it? Oh. Assholi. Assholio,
1: assholioness. <laughs> um, my favorite curse word. Oh, you know, it's a colorful variation on MF. Okay. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. What uh, sound or noise do you love?
1: A flirp. What's a flurp? Well, it's that's a sound. It's a certain kind of fart sound that's cultivated <laughs> by a. Oh my. Yeah, <laughs> uh, flurp. Okay. What sound or noise do you hate? I think a high-pitched saw, like a buzz saw.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt?
1: Probably professional public speaker. Or You would uh, be good at
0: that, Aaron. Or maybe
1: a talk show commentator. I mean, they'd both be fun. Yeah.
0: What profession would you definitely not
1: like to do? I would say cleaning toilets. Never appealed to me. Still doesn't. Uh, Or attorney. Yeah.
0: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you pass through the pearly gates? Uh,
1: I hope he would say welcome and congrats on a life well lived. And also, I would, I look forward to seeing Noah again.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, thank you, Jen. It's been an honor. I hope this hasn't been too much of a bummer for your listeners. That that really wasn't my intention tonight.
0: You know what? This project is about the truth. And sometimes the truth is painful. And um, it's interesting because I'm sitting here feeling badly that my cat keeps getting in the way <laughs> and badly that I'm crying and not being very... Uh, professional or hosty because i'm not <laughs> you know keeping it together and and doing it right and also you have this incredibly sacred and powerful and emotional story and have i handled that well and the truth really is that this is the stuff of life and this is what we should be talking about and this is this is how we learn this is how we grow is leaning into these things that are just awkward and imperfect and sometimes really hard. Yeah. And so it's so kind of you to say, Oh, I hope this isn't a bummer, but I just want to push back a little bit on that because it's okay that it's a bummer because it's the truth. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining Aaron and I in this conversation and for staying with us as we, navigated the difficult twists and turns of talking about something so painful. And I hope that you will take with you part of what Aaron left us with tonight, that idea that even when life is hard and even when you go through something incredibly painful, that there is redemption to be found. And the only way that we can get to that place is if we don't give up and we lean into it and we stay with that challenge so that we can get to the other side and and find that redeeming quality in whatever challenges brought our way. And you know, that other thing you said too about Viktor Frankl, And choosing our reaction, it sounds so simple, but I think it's one of the hardest things that we can learn to do as humans. And so having that reminder and leaning into it over and over and over again and trying to find the response that helps us learn and grow and be a good person who's engaged in our lives and engaged in our relationships, I mean, that's just where it's at. So thank you, Erin. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, Please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. And our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma. And we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at Know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I Know at I-N-W-A-R-D-B-O-U-N-D-C-O dot com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And and the way to find us on the web is to go to alliknow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.